Welcome to Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals, hosted by certified financial planners Justin Brownlee and Jared Machen of Brownlee Wealth Management. The only podcast dedicated to those of you in the oil and gas profession to help you optimize investments, lower future taxes, and grow your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at brownleewealthmanagement.com. All right, this week we are talking about our investment manifesto. Essentially what that is, is what are our investment convictions? Why do we believe them? And and how do we act upon them? But before we get into that, it's really important that I share with everybody that the Arkansas Razorbacks are going to the Super Regional in college baseball. So I'm from Fayetteville. That's where I live, where University of Arkansas is. It's a big deal, super excited. And, you know, I... I got to be honest, this has been a long time coming. Uh, We call the Arkansas Razorbacks more aptly the Heartbreak Hogs. Uh, If you're a Texas A&M football fan, you probably know why. We we find a way to lose games in just the most dramatic and gut-wrenching fashion. So uh, to have have a Charlie Welch, one of our players, come in clutch and hit a hit a big home run at the bottom of the eighth was uh, was just a big deal and and big for the state and big for the program. So random little aside. but thought I'd share that bit of sports. I, I can news. resonate. I can resonate with the uh, sentiment there, especially involving Texas A&M. If you've read some of my blog posts, sometimes I talk about the the fact that I am a massive Kansas State fan. I went to Kansas State. About fifty of my living relatives have degrees from Kansas State, and Texas A&M has a, a very uh, complicated history uh, with Kansas State, um, and so. The 1998 Dr. Pepper Big 12 Championship uh, in the uh, TWA Dome in St. Louis is is a, a day that uh, my family truly hates. Um, A&M upset Kansas State. We were the number one ranked team in the country. We were going to the national championship game, and we're we're going to play one of the worst national champion uh, national championship teams of the modern era in college football. That was Tennessee. That year, really not a not a great team, and so we we constantly think how different would Kansas State be today if A and M didn't come back from a I think it was an eighteen point deficit late in the fourth quarter to force overtime and beat us then. So I can I can resonate there. Yeah, it's it's almost like we're going to have to start incorporating more uh, more SEC football or sports tangents uh, instead of just as much as market tangents. I think I think we got a good thing going there. But back to investment manifesto. All right, Justin. So we kind of have a few points that that we'll flesh out, and we'll use some anecdotes, some evidence, some 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 quotes. Uh, what's what's the first thing you want to cover? All right. So I love this topic. What do we believe? Why do we believe it? Why is it so critical that you have an investment manifesto as an investor? You need to you need to have convictions that guide the decisions you make. So before we even dive into the list, it's important to understand that. As a registered investment advisor, we are legally obligated to be a fiduciary at all times. Uh, so in other words, when a client invests their money with us, we have to we have to manage their money in, in a way that we deem is truly tailored to their best interests. And uh, I think we, we've got a lot of other content on this topic. The topic of is your advisor a fiduciary? Are they fee only? And, and why is that so critical? Uh, so we won't spend too much time on it, but it matters because about 90, 95% of 
financial advisors are not always subject to the fiduciary standard, and instead they're subject to the suitability standard. And you might think, well, surely this advisor is you know, not going to do something drastically different than a fee-only fiduciary would. And you'd be shocked. Uh, it really is amazing when you look at a portfolio. And, and if, if we're investigating you know, someone at a, at a different firm that wants a second opinion on their portfolio, a, a question that we ask is, why do you have the funds that you have? Is it because these are the single best funds in the world? Or is it because your investment company has contracts that give them kickbacks and commissions with these other fund companies? And so it's important to start out on the on the front end of the manifesto. Uh, we believe these things and, and we adhere to these convictions um, because our job is to is to legally do what is in our client's best interests. Um, it's, it's not to, we, we don't receive commissions or kickbacks. We have no incentive, uh, to put clients in any particular fund. Um, and so with that being said, let's, let's dive in. Let me, Justin, let me stop you there and add one thing that we, it's a huge point that you just made. And I want to sit there for a second talking about, you know, making sure that there's no commissions or kickbacks and aligned incentives. But I, I would add to that, we eat our own cooking. So what I mean by that is if you look at our personal funds, uh, they're they're invested, you know, in line with all of the philosophical underpinnings that we're doing for clients. So that's a really important question and something that people should keep in mind when when they're taking investment when when they're receiving investment advice. Is the person on the other side of the table acting in light of that and are identically to that, or is that just something they're selling you and maybe their money's doing something completely different? So uh, this in, these investment convictions, this investment manifesto, not only changes how we manage money on behalf of our clients, but how we manage our money. And, and those things are, you know, inextricably bound and, and, they, and they should be. So sorry to interrupt you, but that's an important one. Love that. Yeah. I, I think Wall Street Journal had an article on that exact topic uh, where they they scanned dozens of advisors that were selling really expensive annuities or managed investment accounts with really expensive funds. And then they, and it was a blind study. So, so no it, advisors were willing to be a little bit more honest uh, in this Wall Street Journal article. And, and it came out that the advisors were selling really expensive investments, annuities to their clients, but their personal funds were all in low cost index funds. <laughs> and so just unbelievable to see that uh, gap there that, that, that should not exist. Uh, but that's, that's a great point. All right. So the first point we want to talk about, they call it the seventh wonder of the world, is compound interest and and why it's so important and and how to, how to capitalize on it. What would you say about compound interest and why is this a point in our investment manifesto? I think as an investor, this needs to be the first thing you focus on. Compound interest should be your end goal. It should be your focus. Um, and from an investment standpoint, uh, you, you should learn how to be obsessed with it. And there's so many underpinnings, so many uh, ramifications of, of having this focus, but uh, it's so difficult um, to, to invest without compound interest, without long-term convictions at, at the onset, uh, because markets are going to throw you around. Uh, markets are going to go up and they're going to go down, and, and it is going to be far more difficult to stick to an excellent portfolio if you don't have the underlying conviction that that your focus, your goal is compound interest. And that really is a, a bedrock of, of where we need to begin. Yeah. And I think, you know, to to paint a, a great picture of an example there, uh, 
Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett gets credited with his uh, ability to pick really great companies at really good prices. But one of the things that that's lesser considered and honestly more monumental in in the formation of his wealth is in fact his time horizon. Uh, I'm going to steal a quote from one of one of our favorite books, Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. It's a great read, um, and really just talks talks a lot about some of these ideas. But here's an interesting. I, I would just read it. Yeah, just read that entire Warren Buffett page. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah. So I so I have a quote, and then and then I'll read kind of what unpacks it a little more and give it gives it an example. So 81.5 billion of Warren Buffett's 84.5 billion net worth came after his 65th birthday. Our minds are not built to handle such absurdities, right? So the value of compounding is uh, it's exponential at the end, right? Because the, the compounded dollars are worth more. But I'm going to read you this this little thought experiment. Buffett began serious investing when he was 10 years old. By the time he was 30, he had a net worth of a million dollars, or 9.3 adjusted for inflation. What if he was a normal person, spending his teens and 20s exploring the world and finding his passion, and by age 30, his net worth was, say, $25,000? And let's say he still went on to earn an, an extraordinary annual investment return because he's able to generate 22% annually, but quit investing and retired at age 60 to play golf and spend time with his grandkids. What would you estimate his net worth to be today? Not 84 billion, but 11.9 million, 99% less than his actual net worth, right? So that's just a great mental model for helping us kind of frame how valuable time is in the market. That was one of Buffett's competitive advantages was his time horizon. He started earlier and he invested for longer than, than the average person, which is, has a big part to play in why he's been so successful. I'm not sure which one of those stats I'm more amazed with. Um, okay, make sure I got those numbers right. Uh, so the first the first point it's making is Warren Buffett at the time of writing. Um, so it's it's certainly different today. At the time of writing this book, he was worth eighty four point five billion. Eighty one of that eighty four point five. So we're talking ninety five percent of his wealth did not happen. It, it it was not amassed until after age sixty five. Right. Is that, am I getting those numbers correct? That's right. That's right. That's unbelievable. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, and so certainly an amazing investor, but his superpower is time. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but you know, he, he is wildly regarded as one of, one of the greater investors of all time. Uh, and a lot of people may hear this and say, okay, yeah, but that was 65 years and, and Warren Buffett's an above average investor. But this leads us to really the second point of our investment manifesto, which is average is good. And it, and it's really average investment returns are awesome and they're exceptional and actually above average compared to, compared to most investors. So Justin, you want to impact that a little bit for us of, of what that means and, and what that means to us? Yes. And I think those two points are very, very tied. Um, and what do I mean by that? We should be consumed. We should be obsessed with the idea of, of just making a really standard return. Let's just throw out a number. Let's just say 7% per year. So we should be far more interested in making 7% a year for 40 years than we are making 40% in one year. 
And that is really, really difficult, especially in the investment landscape that we've been in over the past uh, year or so, because obviously we saw a, a significant market crash and then an unbelievable recovery. And so there are a lot of, lot of portfolios. There are a lot of individual stocks that have seen astronomical gains. And it is fun to see your portfolio, see astronomical gains. And, and that's the beautiful thing about being average. If you just simply stayed in the market, uh, you saw that. But again, compound interest and average returns, we should be far more interested in making 7%. Or if you're willing to stay almost exclusively or, or most of your portfolio in stocks instead of bonds, you might be able to make 9 10% a year. But it's far more advantageous to your wealth to make seven, eight, nine percent a year, even six, even five percent a year over 40 years, over 30 years, uh, than it is to make 50 percent, 60 percent in one year. Uh, and it, it's really not even close. Um, and so average returns, when we think about average returns, uh, I want to also make a point with this that, you know, great amount of our content is is tailored. It is geared towards those who are working at or retiring from the five or 10 largest oil and gas companies. Um, and so as we've talked about in, in one of our earlier podcasts, what's unique about this industry, uh, your employer benefits are way higher than most. Uh, so it, it's it's very possible if you're working at an ExxonMobil, Chevron, Shell, or insert any of the others, very possible to get to retirement with a tremendous amount saved. Um, and, and it's very possible to reach $5 million as a retirement nest egg without ever making a unbelievably high salary. And so even if your highest salary was two or 250000 a year, it's, it's possible to get to four or $5 million. But what's interesting is that happens because of average returns over a really long period of time. Let me tell a quick story on this. Uh, so a case study, and, and this is just so fascinating. Uh, one of the things that Jared and I have loved about having just more time uh, running our investment firm and, and having an investment firm where about 90% of our clients are, are coming from large oil and gas companies is we're now able to get some pretty, pretty interesting data on if you're in this industry and if you're retiring from a large oil and gas company, what's typical, what's standard? And one of the things that really shocked us on the higher end of, of retirees, and so if you're retiring with, say, $4 million or more, uh, so let's say 4 to $10 million, if you're at that point, most of, our, most of our sample size, most of our clients that are in that bucket, uh, when they were 45 to 50 years old, let's say 48, 49, uh, that was the typical age that they first became a millionaire per their investment accounts. And so you think about that and my goodness, at, at age 49, you've been working for almost three decades and you've been earning and saving for almost three decades and it wasn't until around that time when you really saw your 401k and your investment accounts reach a million dollars. But then when you fast forward another 10, 12, 15 years into, into retirement age, into age 60 to age 65, then all of a sudden you've got 5 million. And how does that happen? Why does it take three decades to reach 1 million? But then another 10 or 15 years later, all of a sudden you're at 5 million. That's, that's an enormous jump. Um, or put it another way, 80% of your wealth happened in the last 10 years of your career 
as your pension matured, as your 401k continued to compound and double every seven years. It's really fascinating uh, to see that effect, um, even, even just within our clients, that even if you're retiring with a large sum of money, um, you probably didn't, didn't even become a millionaire until 10 or 15 years ago. Yet compound interest has just really picked up steam. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a great point. And one of the reasons we aim for average is because most people get below average, right? Uh, and there's really two reasons why most people underperform, uh, whatever benchmark it is they're seeking to track. And the two reasons, one fees, fees eat at investment returns. There's a lot of literature that says the more expensive an investment product is the, the odds that it delivers above average returns decreases, uh, and the right so so fees is the first point and the second point really is your emotions right if you think about investing it's easiest to buy when things are going up and it's easiest to sell when things are going down but that's actually counterintuitive to what you want to do you want to you want to buy when prices are cheap and sell when prices are high so it's really difficult to to get average returns when you're in, fighting wall street in their high fees and your investment behavior and I I want to touch on this because this is this is a really important idea. I have I have this uh, I have this uh, PDF that that we'll include in the show notes, and it's the percentage of U.S. based mutual funds that uh, outperform their benchmarks. So essentially, what this is is it's professional investors who will take an index, for example, the S and P five hundred, and they'll apply their brightest minds to trying to beat that index by picking individual stocks over an extended period of time. And the literature is fascinating. So over a 20-year period, uh, if, if you were an equity mutual fund manager, the odds of you even surviving, not going out of business, 41% and only 19% beat their benchmark. Think about that. Professional investors, there was a 20% chance that they did above average, which is ridiculous. If, if, if in any professional sport, only 20% of the people were above average, no one would watch it. But why Why does Wall Street do this? It's it's incentives, right? They can charge a higher fee if, if they're managing this. And people like the idea of, hey, I want to be above average. Um, so, so it sells and it's marketable, but the literature just doesn't support it being a sustained edge. It really is amazing. So professional investors, uh, very few of them are even able to be better than average. Uh, something we've written on, and we'll we'll probably address this um, in, in some podcasts in the future, uh, dividend investing. So, so building a portfolio that focuses on dividends is uh, historically, academically, a, a bad way to invest. In fact, you actually get a better return if you focus on value stocks and in harvest out, remove some of the high dividend payers. Uh, but again, just like you mentioned, Wall Street has incentives where even if professionals and their their strategies that they're employing, even if they don't work, which they don't work, uh, 80% of them are, are not working, uh, Wall Street can charge many multiples more, 10 times the price uh, to, to employ those professional strategies, even though they're not working. And so it doesn't matter if the end client has a worse return, it drives more revenue for the investment firm, which is a problem. That's right. And what, you know, one, 
point that makes it so difficult is is an idea called attribution. So what percentage of of the stocks are actually actually driving driving investment returns. So one of the things you'll see is if a stock if the stock market returns 8%, that's not all of the stocks in that index returning 8%. That's a few of them, you know, that three, up 300 400% and then a good percentage of them that are down. Uh, but it's just it's so difficult to find find those needles in the haystack. Justin, you have a you have a good good statistic there. What what percentage of of the companies that that were in the S and P have gone bankrupt or merged with another company? What what percent don't exist anymore? Yep. So the S and P five hundred, world's most famous stock market index, uh, it is the five hundred largest companies by market capitalization in the United States. So if you want to if you want to know how is the U S stock market doing, the S and P five hundred is a pretty reasonable thing to look at, but fascinating in investment nuggets that we can learn from it. The S&P 500 was created in the mid-50s. I think it was 1957. So 1957, 500 of the largest companies are put into this index. How many of those original 500 are still in the S&P 500 today? Only about 10 to 15%. Uh, let me say that another way. Over 400 of the original 500 in the S&P 500 have have had such a catastrophic loss. They have performed so poorly that they're not even in the S&P 500 anymore. Many of them, not just a catastrophic loss, many of them have gone bankrupt and are no longer in business. Let, let's make another let's make another takeaway from that. Not only has the S and P five hundred seen incredible turnover uh, since its inception, you know, in in the mid fifties, the speed, the velocity at which this turnover is happening is is so much faster today than it was fifty years ago, or, or all the way back in inception. And what do I mean by that? Uh, you know, it might have taken 30, 40 years for a lot of those original companies to fall out of the index. But today, that's happening way faster. Companies are rising and falling at a much faster clip. Uh, you want an example of this? Uh, let's take a look at the 10, 20 largest companies in America today. There's a, there's a surprising number of them that didn't exist in 1990. So we're talking about, you know, Netflix didn't exist back then. Now they're one of the largest companies in the country. Amazon, same story. So we are seeing that the, the speed at which companies rise and the speed at which companies fall. Not a whole lot of families in Connecticut, uh, this, this is about five years ago, expected GE, widely regarded, GE widely regarded as one of the safest investments, safest stocks in, in, in the world. Uh, and it has this catastrophic crash several years ago, while the rest of the market is doing well. Uh, this is not during a market crash. I mean, this is during one of the greatest bull markets uh, we've seen. And so the point there, the point being is it is really dangerous to pick individual stocks. And it's tempting because you you see Amazon, you see Apple, you see Netflix, uh, or Domino's is an unexpected one that has just done unbelievably well over the past 12 years. But you see that happen and you hear those stories. You hear stories of your neighbor or famous people putting a bunch of money in, in those stocks and seeing their money 10x over a decade or so. But the problem is that's not normal and you're not hearing stories of, of just how many people picked three, four different stocks and it went it went wrong. It, it did not work out. It did not compound. Uh, most stocks underperform. 
their index. Uh, Jared, just like you alluded to, when you see a 10% return in any given year, very common that a small portion had exceptional returns and a lot of, lot of the index, a lot of stocks underperformed. And so average really is, is tremendous. And, and most investors do not get average returns. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. And so, you know, if, if we're aiming for, for average returns, uh, the third point, when like when do you get into the market, right? Um, so our third point is really talking about market timing, right? And that we think it's pretty much impossible to time the market. So really, really time in the market versus timing the market is is what's going to serve you well. And it kind of touches on our two points of, you know, letting average returns work out and taking advantage of compounding. But you want to touch on a little more. Uh, what we mean by that and, and why we why we don't try to time the market? Yes, I know. I know we've got a great resource. Um, I think it's either from DFA or Fidelity, but there's been a lot of studies on this. Uh, going back to 1980, what happens if you keep your money invested over the last 40 years at all points in time? Versus what happens if you miss the best five days in the market? And it's shocking because. Over the past 40 years, if you just miss the best five days in the market, it actually cuts your return by 50%, which is just astounding. Um, and if you miss the best 10 days in the market, you have a fraction of what you would have if you just stayed invested the entire time. Uh, one of my favorite stories, uh, because this is a little bit more, this hits closer to home for, for everyone listening and, and, and for us, 2008, Great Recession, Worst Market Crash of basically anyone who is alive today. So horrible market crash. Let's pretend that you have just really, really unfortunate um, investment timing and you have a million dollars and you invest it right before the 2008 market crash. If that happens and you put a million dollars in, well, you know, six months, a year later, you're going to be feeling some pain. Uh, that million dollars is going to be 500, 550,000. Uh, it's going to be down substantially. But what if you invested that million dollars and you just never looked at it until, until today or until the last year or so? Uh, so you might be oblivious that the first six months were horrible. Uh, in 2008, you invested a million dollars and your account went down to 550000 But if you just kept it there, if you just stayed invested, uh, it would be over $2.5 million. Um, and so what an incredible return. And you could be completely oblivious to just how awful that 2008 crash was. But what a great example. You cannot time the market. And it's really tempting, really tempting to do it. But you cannot do it. Yeah. And one point I'll add here is a lot of people think you have to get one thing right. You really have to get two, right? You have to decide when to get out and then when to get back in. And a lot of times the, the times people get out and get back in are, are the times when the markets are most volatile and they're abandoning their rules-based approach or their philosophy and you know the most emotionally vulnerable to making an emotional decision. So uh, a lot of people think it can be done, but it's really difficult for those two reasons. You have to figure out when to get out and when to get back in. Uh, I've heard horror stories of people sitting on the sidelines since 2008, just hoping that things are going to crash and they still have a portion of cash on the sidelines, which is just, which is devastating, right? And, and they have, may have even timed getting out correctly, but they didn't know when to get back in and they've missed out on one of the biggest bull runs in, in the history of, of the U.S. economy and of the stock market. And what did they do there? 
they, they effectively waged war on our very first principle. They waged war on our first conviction that compound interest should be your obsession and focus as an investor. It just doesn't matter if the market goes up or down over the next year. It just doesn't matter what the market is doing next week. Be consumed with owning an excellent portfolio for decades and do not interrupt compound interest. Yeah, absolutely. Justin, I'll let you take the next point. What's the next point you got on your list of our investment manifesto? All right. So a quick point on the stock markets are relatively efficient. And if if we have an understanding, if we agree that the the markets are relatively efficient, that has a lot of uh, uh, ramifications. And, you know, a lot of our, a lot of our convictions that we're listing here are some, some kind of cousins of this point. And so, uh, just, just to, to make a quick, quick thought on this, if the stock market is efficient, then, uh, that should influence the point about the markets being average and getting an average return is something to uh, aspire to. It is, it is something to, to shoot for. If the markets are efficient, well, that means that the price uh, that we see, you know, when we approach the stock market, a lot of people think there's a misnomer that, well, the price of this stock is wrong and everybody else is wrong. And instead, we should assume that market prices are, are genuinely, generally correct. Uh, so when you're at work and you're sitting at the water cooler talking about which stocks we should buy, or Jared, how many times have you been asked if you tell somebody that you're a financial planner, financial advisor, you're a CFP, what do they typically ask you? Which stock should I buy? That's the number one question I get. Yes, absolutely. All the time. It goes back to this idea. And, and all of our culture and society has reinforced that that's what Wall Street does. Wall Street magically knows which stocks to buy and at which time to buy them. It's just not the case. Markets are relatively efficient. Uh, I'm pulling out an iPhone. A lot of us have iPhones. Why, why is an iPhone significant? Well, markets are efficient. We're in the information age. The highest paid analyst at Goldman Sachs has access to the same information as a 15-year-old in Bangladesh because of, because of the markets being efficient, because of the information age that we're in. And so uh, that idea should help remove some of the anxiety. It should also help remove some of the, some of the almost temptation of trying to pick winners or trying to time when are things going to go up or down. Yeah. And I'll caveat that with saying markets are efficient, so they reflect all the information available, but they're not always rational. Right. So that's why you see why you will see these boom and bust cycles. So there's a, you know, there's an information component and there's also a behavioral component. So when, you know, if you think about it, another reason why we're big proponents of not picking individual stocks, there's thousands of market participants, institutions trading billions of dollars a day based on all of the collective information and whole teams analyzing individual securities. When, when you think something is mispriced, you're basic, basically making a declaration that collective wisdom is wrong. Um, so, you know, the research shows it, but that's another reason kind of why you're stacking the odds against your favor uh, and why it's important to understand the passive markets being efficient approach. Yes. And it's, it's hard to really uh, grasp onto that. But when you understand that markets are efficient and that you're, when you see the market price, let's just say it's Amazon. When you see the market price, it's important to understand that if the market's efficient, the price of Amazon right now is generally a, a correct price. 
And that is opposite. That seems like a really simple elementary idea, but that is opposite of how most of our culture approaches investing. Most of our culture approaches investing with the idea that Amazon is underpriced. I'm I'm buying I'm buying options on Amazon. I'm 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 doing margin trading on Amazon because I know that the price of Amazon is actually two times higher than the rest of the world, than the rest of every trader, every institution in the market today thinks it is. And that's a really scary thought. Uh, you should not assume that, that the price that you think a security should be, you should not assume that the entire world is wrong and that you're right. Uh, that's a dangerous thing in investing. Yeah. One of, yeah. One of our philosophical underpinnings, I would say, that guides our investment approach is humility. Markets are crazy. So, you know, the moment we get uh, overly optimistic, I feel like it's it's a good opportunity to to get punished by by the market. Okay. So... So that was point four. Markets are efficient, but it kind of it's a good a good segue into point five, which really defining the market and and what we mean by that is is the global equity market and and not the S and P. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yes, and so I like using the word markets, uh, plural, with an S on the end, rather than stock market, uh, because when you hear what is the stock market doing. Typically, most people are, are, are referring to, maybe they're talking about the Dow, but most people are referring to the S&P 500. And the S&P 500 um, is a terrific index, gives you a good barometer of U.S. large cap companies, but that is a very, very small minority of the available opportunity in the world as an investor today. So there's about 500 uh, companies that cycle through the S&P 500. And <laughs> odd note there, there's not always 500. Uh, it, it can fluctuate a little bit. Um, but there are eight, 9,000 different publicly traded companies across the globe. There are thousands of companies in the U.S. that are not in the S&P 500. There are thousands of companies outside of the U.S. that, that the S&P 500 obviously does not include. And so we we want this point, and it really is critical uh, to simply be your investments need to need to go outside. They need to include the S and P five hundred, but they need to not stop there. Uh, we need to go beyond just owning the S and P five hundred because that is a small portion of the available opportunity size, and there is a tremendous amount of opportunity outside of the S and P five hundred. Yeah, absolutely. And just to put some hard numbers on it, there's a great slide from Dimensional Fund Advisors uh, that talks about the the home market index portfolio. So uh, the S&P is one country with about 500 stocks. So a better proxy of the market uh, is the MSCI ACWI index, which is the Investable Market Index, which is composed of 50 countries and 8,980 stocks. So if you're an investor and and you own the S&P 500, uh, you don't own the markets. You own a single market, which is making uh, a concentrated bet. So, uh, Justin, a piece of trivia here for you related to that. Uh, over the last 20 years, how many years do you think the the U.S. was the number one performing equity market? I mean, the last 12 years has been so incredible in the U.S. that you would think that surely over the last 20 years, at least at least nine or 10, the U.S. has been the top market. But I'm guessing that I'm not even close. Only once. And we'll share this slide. Uh, it's another 
Yeah, another DFA slide that shows uh, investment returns by year, by country. And yeah, the U.S. was the number one performing equity market over the last 20 years, which is just another proof of point that, you know, we need to be globally diversified and we need to think about the collective markets and not just the market. That really is amazing. So just once out of the past 20 years has it been the top market. That's right. That's right. You know, another quick point on this too is, you know, we mentioned the S&P 500. Uh, I, I alluded to this, you know, a minute ago. The S&P 500 has been unbelievable for the past 12 years. I think it's averaging, what, 16, 17% a year, something like that. So you think about that and historically it's it's closer to 10%. So over the next 10 years, so for the past 10 years, the S&P 500 has been great. But unfortunately, we don't get to invest uh, in the last 10 years. Um, we, we have to invest in, in the future. Um, and so if we, if we think about what's the better value, well, the PE ratio, the, the value that we can obtain in smaller companies is just so much more attractive than the S&P 500 right now. The value in emerging markets, some international companies, same story. I mean, it, it is almost like a scenario where, I mean, if, if, you're, if you're owning a small business and you have to buy materials to, to produce whatever it is you're producing, well, you've got four different you know, providers that you could buy your, your goods or your materials from. And one of them is charging double the price of all the others. And you really shouldn't care if they're relatively equal. You, you probably shouldn't care who you buy from, but the S and P 500 is, is actively choosing to buy from the most expensive one right now. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, that's a really, really great point. So our next point really kind of takes this another level further, right? We'll begin to talk about following academic research and and factors. So th this kind of gets touches on if, you know, if we think markets are efficient and we want to globally diversify, why don't we just own one fund that is the total investable universe? Uh, you want to talk a little more about, give a primer on what factors are, why we believe in them, and then a couple of examples? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I want I want a point that you made a few minutes ago. I want this point to show up several times throughout this episode, and that is humility. And that is part of the reason why we don't put everything in the S&P 500, because we want to have enough humility to say that we don't know where returns are going to come from. Now, there is somewhat of a flip side to that, and that history and academic research does tell a consistent story that over the past, you know, let's say century-ish, um, over, over the last several, several decades, there are factors that have historically led to better performance. Um, and real quick, those are small companies. So small companies historically perform better than large companies. Uh, value companies historically perform better than growth companies. And profitable companies historically outperform their less profitable peers. And, you know, I would also say that all of those factors are, are pretty intuitive, pretty rational in an efficient market, right? It, it, if a market's efficient, it, it, it only makes sense that you would be compensated to invest in a small company more than a large company uh, because there's more risk with a small company. And so I know that you can provide a little bit more color on each of those factors. Yeah. So a, a good way philosophically to think about factors, it's, it's weight, additional weighting 
uh, to characteristics that have historically delivered outperformance. So Warren Buffett, you know, if you think about his investment philosophy, it was exposure to to the value factor, right? That that cheap companies outperform expensive companies, right? And so for a factor to really be robust enough to where you you add maybe some additional exposure to that factor. It needs to be pervasive and persistent, which basically means it shows up in different economies over different time periods. And there's, you know, we have, we have market data going back decades and decades and decades. So, you know, these have been observed over really long periods of time and across a bunch of different type of markets and across a bunch of different company sizes, uh, different economic regimes and interest rates. So, uh, really really the research needs to be robust and so what we do is assuming that you know the factor does in fact exist we will uh add additional exposure so it sounds counterintuitive because we just talked about not trying to pick the best company so so we we do philosophically we tilt so additional exposure could be added to characteristics in companies that have historically delivered outperformance but um there's a dfa slide that shows the odds that these types of companies, the odds of small beating large, value beating growth over various time periods, uh, and so it's not it's not always the case. the The last decade has been 2010 to 2020 has been a great example where growth has absolutely crushed value, um, but but we're still we still have a high degree of conviction on that. But uh, it just shows you that over various time periods, uh, you may you may perform differently than the benchmark or underperform the, the counterpart that you're exposing yourself to. That's right. And we've mentioned DFA a few times and uh, dimensional really is a tremendous firm and they, and they put out just exceptional research uh, and in their origins, they were founded by a couple Nobel prize winning economists um, who, who really targeted uh, some of a lot of what has influenced investing today um, and just what makes sense when you build a long-term portfolio uh, and a lot of the work on factors is, is, is from them as well. Just that, hey, this is something that is that has been bigger. You know, small companies outperforming large. That hasn't been something that has been you know a five year window or, or a trend. It's it's something that is sustained over different different presidents, different different economic environments, different inflationary environments. Uh, interest rates moving at all different sorts of, of levels. And so it's something that is really seen to be true uh, throughout different landscapes. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And a great anecdote to try to kind of paint some light on this is if, if you were tasked with finding uh, the U.S. Olympics team next national swimmers and you knew that 80% of those uh, had a certain wingspan between this dimension and this dimension— you would you would seek out people like that if there's a statistical advantage. And in the same way, we look for this statistical uh, and an- easily analyzable uh, characteristic that's historically delivered uh, outperformance or above market returns, and we we try to overweight that. But um, it, this this kind of leads to to an interesting point as as we get towards the end. Uh, there's two investment camps: active and passive, and we've kind of touched on those briefly, but. Uh, Justin, where do you think, because, you know, there's, there seems to be some nuance in the things we're saying. If, if someone, you know, asked you, are we passive or active? How, how would you answer that question? 
you know, I think I think we're a little bit of a mixture of both. And if you look at our portfolios, we are quite literally a, a mixture of both. We we use a good portion of our our portfolio. We'll use a pure index fund, uh, which is entirely passive. Quick definitions: as a passive investor, you are simply investing uh, usually in an index fund portfolio that matches the market capitalization of the global universe of stocks. So, if you're purely passive, uh, you're going to just simply go with index uh, funds that are are tied to the market capitalization of the global market of stocks. Now, if you're active, you're deviating from that, right? So you're not you're not accepting the market capitalization. You're not going pure index funds. Instead, you are making uh, essentially making bets, uh, putting different allocations than the market capitalization would suggest. And so we really are in the middle. And as you were talking about that last point, Jared, so the factors, small companies, value companies, profitable companies, uh, we just we just gave an entire point on that, and it's it's easy to think that that contradicts uh, point number two. Point number two was average. It is really really good to be average. Most investors are not average; they're below average. And if you can simply be an average investor, you're going to do exceptionally well. So how do we how do we reconcile uh, those two that that are somewhat opposed? And the answer is, uh, if I had to if I had to take a look at what we're doing, it's almost as if we're index 2.0 or enhanced indexing. And this ties in with, with one of our final points that cost matters when you're investing a low cost portfolio. I mean, historically, the evidence is, is just unbelievably significant. Low cost portfolios outperform high cost portfolios a drastic majority of the time. And so it's not as if I think that it's terrible to be active. The problem with active is what are you paying for it? And what are their convictions? Why are there why 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 are they deviating from from just pure indexing and, and average returns? And does their evidence hold up over several decades? Is there a tremendous amount of reason that that suggests it? But almost one of the most important consider, considerations there is what are you paying? Uh, to have a more active portfolio because a low cost portfolio will beat most of the time, most of the vast majority of the time will beat a higher cost alternative. Yeah, that's really a big point. So, you know, exposing yourself to take take right sizing risk. And, and, you know, I would add there, if you're, if you're looking for an active manager, what rules and framework do they have to prevent themselves from their behavior getting getting in the way right we talked a little bit about it, that idea of behavioral underperformance right and knowing that we're likely to make the worst decisions at the worst times so you know do they have a quantitative framework for for decision making to take the to the behavior the behavior out of it cuz that that is where that's where you really get into trouble and uh you know, we could talk, we could dedicate a whole nother podcast towards talking about implementation. So in light of all these ideas, how do you actually go out and construct, uh, construct portfolio? So, so how you implement this matters and you need to be mindful of that. But these are, these are some of the ideas, uh, and, and the framework that, that we use to be, to begin, uh, our investment process and the, and that kind of guides our investment decision-making. So, 
all of this funnels through to the individual client, right? This is, if you think about a grid, there's like, there's like an overlay, right? We, we think about this investment process, but then also a client specific, specific situation, uh, what their goals are, what their time horizon is, what their tax considerations are. So how this actually manifests itself in an individual client situation may, may differ. So I encourage you to get a second opinion, a second set of eyes or, or, or delegate this. Cause there, there's a lot that goes into it. Justin, do you have any closing thoughts as we wrap up? Absolutely. So a quick recap of everything we've covered. So what is our manifesto? What do we believe about investing? So the first point, compound interest should be your focus. Uh, drastically more important to make 7% over 40 years than it is to make 40% in one year. So compound interest, number one, average returns are quite exceptional. Number two, so average returns, most investors are below average. So simply being average for a long period of time will provide you with with a tremendous amount of wealth. Um, You cannot time the market. Uh, Do not time the market. Just don't do it. Uh, Stock markets are relatively efficient. Uh, The market is broader. The market is bigger than the S&P 500. And then factors. So the factors of investing uh, that we like to tilt to. And uh, a low-cost portfolio, very likely to beat a high-cost portfolio. Uh, We've got a lot of content on that. And uh, I think one of my favorite articles that I've I've done is, is, is just on our fee structure. Uh, because what you're paying for investment advice has a tremendous, it has a direct impact on your return. And uh, maybe in a future episode, we might answer another uh, tangent with investing, which is uh, just where does concentrated bets come into play? So when is it okay to take part of your portfolio and, and make a big bet? One thing that I love being really open and transparent about is, well, two things. So on one hand, Jared mentioned at the beginning, we eat our own cooking. So our investment accounts, uh, we are, are always, we are committed to the idea that our investment accounts are going to be invested uh, in the same philosophical underpinnings, even the same funds that we would invest our clients in. Uh, but then the second point that, that I'd, I'd love to talk about is, well, I started Brownlee Wealth Management. Jared joined Brownlee Wealth Management as an equity partner, and we have both made significant bets with our personal balance sheet into this company. And so where does that come into play? If, if you are starting a business, if, if you are making a concentrated bet, how do you sort through those decisions? And so that's an entire topic that would be fun to dive into in a future episode as well. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's the theoretical orientation and then the application to your specific circumstances, but this has been good. Uh, Please let us know if you have any questions or want to learn more. Thanks. Have a good week. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. You can subscribe or connect with us at brownleewealthmanagement.com or send ideas for future episodes to podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed during this show or episode should be viewed as investment, legal, and tax advice. If you have questions pertaining to your specific situation, please consult the appropriate qualified professional.